Well, hello out there to anyone listening. This is Onion Ring Sasquatch, ORS at the Movies, coming at you once again. This is the movie review podcast that takes eight months to review a 95-minute movie. This is your host, your homeboy, G-Money Clip, and with me today, as always, my homeboy, Thornton Mellon. My homeboy. We've gotten much better. It hasn't been eight months. It's been like eight weeks. It's well, been, it, it, been it, a lot better or something. It helps that I uh, <laughs> found a movie that you were interested in actually watching, so it wasn't like pulling teeth to get you over here again. If you're checking us out on our audio forms here, you can find video versions of our podcast over at YouTube, although they suck. So go to Rumble, and you can find them there a lot quicker. If you're watching any of our videos, you can catch the audio forms over at Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast Addict, just about any of your favorite places that you can get podcasts. So you want to talk or what? So last time we flipped a coin... And it's kind of like Alien versus Predator. Whoever wins, we lose. And the coin came up for Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. And I was kind of debating or trying to figure out how much needs to be said about Star Trek at the beginning. Because it is probably like the second biggest science fiction IP out there. Right. I think other than Star Wars, there's probably nothing else in pop culture that's ahead of it just as far as in recognition. Especially nowadays with the glut of television shows and movies and everything they've had in the last several years. But I think maybe a brief run-through from the beginning for folks who have only picked up on Star Trek since 2009 sure. might be a little bit beneficial. Just for funsies. Right on. Catch us know. up. Catch us yeah, up. Yeah, and if I uh, if I start wandering in the weeds a little too far, <laughs> reel me back in, but we'll see how much of this ends up getting cut out. Star Trek, back in the 60s, was created by Gene Roddenberry, who... Wanted to make a show, he, he termed it Wagon Train to the Stars. It was about the crew of the Starship Enterprise in the future, the 23rd century. They're out exploring space, trying to discover new life and seek out new civilizations and all that sort of thing that they talk about. Each episode was sort of like a, a self-enclosed adventure. You didn't have to see them all in a sequence to understand what was going on, so you didn't have to binge watch it, of course. They didn't have that sort of thing back then. And the best episodes of the show explored real-life social and political issues. They took them seriously for the most part. The best episodes just really kind of looked at things through that sci-fi lens so that it was trying to talk about serious things that were going on, but also entertain you at the same time. Right. A lot of times they didn't really come up with black or white solutions to the problems. It's like they would handle it a certain way, and then at the end they would go, okay, well, we did this, but was that the right thing? Or is that going to create more problems down the line? I guess we're just going to have to wait and see. Yeah. So it didn't tell you exactly what the thing was to do. It's all different today. <laughs> but the show ran on TV from 1966 to 1969. It never really got the ratings that the network wanted. Although it did have a very passionate fan base. Very dedicated folks. And when the show was rumored to be on the hook for cancellation during its second season... The fans organized a letter-writing campaign. Now, for you really young folks, letters are what people used to do in the days before email. So you would write on a piece of paper, tell the network, hey, don't cancel Star Trek, we really like it, and then put it in the mail, and then they would get those letters at the studio, and if they got enough of them, it might convince them to maybe not cancel the show, which is kind of what happened here. Paramount received 116,000 letters between December of 1967 and March of 1968. There was one NBC executive who said the network actually got more than a million pieces. Oh, wow. But they only disclosed 116,000. That's a bit of a discrepancy. It is. But it's like one of those things where maybe they didn't want to admit how big it was, but just say, no, it was, it was big. It saved the show for a third season. Uh -huh. But there were problems. In season three, the show's budget had been cut. They were 
making the show for 190000 an episode in the first season. By season three, that had been cut to 175000 And NBC also moved the show to the death slot, <laughs> 10 p.m. on Friday night. Oh, wow. Yeah, so even in the days of no internet or no computer games, people were not watching television at 10 o'clock on Friday night. They had other things to do. They had lives back then. So Star Trek was canceled despite another letter-writing campaign, and the last episode of the show aired June of 1969. So now Star Trek goes into what they call the wilderness years. The cast found it difficult getting work. They were typecast. They were trying to do anything they could, working on stage, doing commercials. This is where we get those amazing William Shatner commercials from the 1970s where he's in grocery stores running around with uh, guys in penguin suits or he's selling promised butter. Hey, right now, Loblaws is having a huge frozen food sale. You can get tremendous value on over 50 frozen food items. Just doing anything, anything you can to kind of keep things going. He was living out of his trailer, I think, for a while. Oh, wow. It was, it was a rough time in the early 70s for these guys. Didn't make any good investments when they were on top. He might have had an ex-wife at oh, this point. that'll explain it. <laughs> Not a fun time for, for any of them, really. Yeah. But the fans out there stayed fiercely loyal to the show and to the cast, and they started organizing conventions where they could get together and meet, because remember, you didn't have email, you couldn't schedule Skype meetings back then, you couldn't just talk to each other through there. If you wanted to actually meet people, you had to go somewhere in person. Mm -hmm. So they would start organizing conventions and trying to get any of the stars of the show to come out there and say hi, sign autographs, that sort of thing. So this was like the dawn of what is now a massive industry of conventions, but it was all centered around this one TV show. Star Trek didn't die completely. There was an animated series in 1973 that ran for a year. And because of that and people seeing, hey, these fan conventions or something, there's some interest in that. Maybe we should make a movie. So Gene Roddenberry starts working on a Star Trek movie in 1975. And it goes through a few different scripts and he's got some different ideas, but the studio really didn't like any of them. After working on that for a couple years, in early 1977, they say, you know what, we're not going to do a movie, we're going to do television instead. We're going to make another TV show. And then, a funny thing happened on May 25th, 1977. Star Wars opens, and ends up becoming the highest grossing movie in history. So studios everywhere start looking for similar properties, like, what do we got that's like that? So we want to strike while the iron's hot and make a ton of money, like Fox just did. Paramount wasn't entirely convinced that lightning would strike twice. Plus, they had just announced a few weeks earlier that Star Trek was going to not be a movie and be on television. And if they reversed themselves, they would look like idiots. Sure. Publicly, they were like, we're going to keep going as a TV show. In the meantime, they're really trying to see if any of the scripts they had for the show would make a good movie. And they're building sets and everything for the TV show, but those could also be used for the movie. What really solidified it is when Close Encounters of the Third Kind opened in November of 1977 and became Columbia's highest grossing movie, they were like, yeah, this sci-fi thing is really hot right now. We're going to make a movie, and they announced it in early 1978. So Star Trek The Motion Picture opens in December of 1979. It was very expensive to make because they also had the cost of the television show that they rolled into the budget. So it ends up costing something like $40, $44 million, which was a lot at the time. And it made a nice return... A little disappointing. They thought it was going to do better than it did, but it was profitable enough that if they could get their costs down, yeah, we can go ahead with sequels, which they did with Star Trek II. They brought in Harve Bennett from Paramount's television division, and I think the budget on Star Trek II drops to $11 million. Way less spent on it. It didn't make as much money as the motion picture, but it made more profit. And so they continue going forward with sequels. They've got parts two, three, and four, which make a nice trilogy. Mm -hmm. The last two directed by Leonard Nimoy. 
and Star Trek IV becomes the highest grossing movie of the series. It made over $100 million back when that meant something. Now a movie will make $100 million its first day if it's got Marvel in the title or something, but it's not a big deal. But back then, that was good. I didn't realize that Part 4 was the highest grossing of the... Yeah, if you... uh, Unadjusted for inflation, it'd end up at like $106 or something. That's like the one everybody's grandma likes. You know, (laughs) that was the one for the normies. It's the one that's the least sci-fi, though. It's like, it's interesting that that's the one that was the most popular. Well, that's because the normies can sit down and watch it. You know, you can sit down with grandma, you can watch that movie, and she doesn't know anything about Star Trek, but it's funny, and you've got like the whales, and it just really clicked with the audience. Gotcha. After 4 was done, that story arc was completed, and for the first time in years, Star Trek needs to come up with a new story. So what do we do? <laughs> they didn't have a script, but they had a director. <laughs> William Shatner. Since the TV days, Shatner and Leonard Nimoy had what they called a favored nation status clause in their contracts. So whatever one of them gets, the other one gets too. So if Leonard Nimoy shows up one day on set and William Shatner's got a bigger trailer, Leonard Nimoy says, hey, I want one of those. And you got to do it because it's in the contract. So after directing part three, William Shatner says, hey, wait a second, I'm supposed to get that. So part of his agreement for coming back for part four is that he gets to direct part five. He had already had an idea before he had been named the director. He was looking at televangelists in the 1980s era. So he was seeing guys on TV, you know, like Jim Baker, Jerry Falwell, Jimmy Swaggart, all those guys talking about God and how if you send all your money to us, you know, you'll be rewarded and all that stuff. He found these guys repulsive but fascinating at the same time. How are you getting insanely wealthy? You're supposed to be a preacher. Sure. And it's one of those things where he was looking at these snake oil salesmen and has the idea about, you know, maybe one of these guys getting a hold of the crew of the Enterprise and messing around with them. Shatner worked with Harv Bennett on the story. Now, Harv Bennett had been doing Star Trek movies since number two, Mm -hmm. and he was ready to move on. He had had problems with Leonard Nimoy on the last movie and was just like, you know what, I'm ready to walk away from Star Trek. Shatner convinces him to come back for one more go. And they wanted Nicholas Meyer, who had directed Star Trek II and had worked on the script with him for part four, They wanted him to write the script, but he wasn't available. So they get a guy named David Lowry. And the script goes through several changes and rewrites as people just were struggling with things going on in the script. It's like they would put the script in and Leonard Nimoy would have a problem with something or DeForest Kelly would have a problem with something saying, no, I don't don't like this for my characters. And Lowry had to stop working on the script because the Writers Guild of America went on strike from March 7th to August 7th of 1988, 153 days. So from that point, the writers weren't touching anything. It screwed up everything that was in production at the time. That's why the Next Generation second season is shorter than all the others. Yeah, right. And as soon as it came back, they're like, okay, we got to get scripts. And they pulled one of the scripts from the old aborted Star Trek show of the 70s and made some changes and threw that one out there. And even after the strike ended and work resumed, nobody was ever 100% happy with the script. But it was getting to the point where it had been a couple of years, and parts two, three, and four all came out two years from each other. 82, 84, 86. Well, now we're getting into 1988, and they aren't even started on the movie yet. So they were worried about all the goodwill from part four kind of vanishing. This was a big movie. It was really popular, but we haven't had a follow-up, and you got to strike while the iron's hot, so sure. we got to get moving on this thing. So despite nobody being 100% happy with the script, principal photography starts in October of 1988 and was almost immediately hit by another strike. This time, the Teamsters, all the truck drivers. Paramount, at this point, it's like, we got to keep things moving. We're going to get non-union guys to drive the trucks. It'd be a shame if something happened to one of those trucks, right? So one of the camera trucks exploded in the studio parking lot. Good God. (laughs) 
So what they did is the production <laughs> drove to Yosemite to start filming under police escort in the middle of the night with their non-union guys. Because, <laughs> yeah, the Teamsters don't mess around. Just ask Jimmy Hoffa. Oh, if you could find him. Mm. Good luck with that. So they film out in Yosemite. They film out in the Mojave Desert where they run into temperatures of over 100 degrees while they're trying to film in the middle of nowhere. Uh, there was an incident where Shatner and a small crew were stranded when a driver failed to show up and a park ranger had to rescue them. <laughs> oh, and Will Wheaton said that Shatner was mean to him when he visited the set and still bitches about it 30 years later. <laughs> Shut up, Wesley. Now, there are a couple things about William Shatner as a director. He had never directed a movie before. Now, he had directed television. Ten episodes of T.J. Hooker, the show he was on in the mid-80s. None of but these guys was... ever directed the original series, right? No. Oh, okay. But this is his first feature film, which, you know, isn't in itself an immediate disqualifier because Leonard Nimoy had also never directed a movie when he did number three, Search for Spock. Problem kind of is that there has never been a cattier group of people <laughs> than the cast of Star Trek. Most of these guys had some kind of beef with Shatner going back to the 60s. Right, right. Now he's the director and he's working on the story, too, on top of everything else. Good luck. <laughs> George Decay in particular has had some, yes. some bad blood with him. Now, oddly enough, he's the one guy that said, despite all his problems with Shatner, that working with him as a director wasn't that bad. Oh, wow. All right. He said he was kind of surprised to find that out as things went along. He's like, oh, this, this isn't that bad. But yeah, it wasn't fun. And it's after this movie that he decided, you know what? I'm not even going to be with you guys when we do part six. He wanted to do his own thing. Make me captain of the Excelsior. And Shatner's talking to him going, George, it isn't real. You're not really a captain. You'll get more screen time if you're with the rest of the crew than you will if you're playing this other part. And he's like, I don't care. <laughs> Just get me over here as far away from everybody else as possible. Which honestly, I think, makes a little bit more sense contextually with these guys as they're aging as a crew. It would make more sense for them to you know, be promoted and moved on to other things rather than just continuing to be clustered. Well, they did sand. that in parts. Yeah. But they always kind of got pulled back together. Like you see in the motion picture, of course, Kirk's an admiral. Right, right. And Spock isn't there. McCoy's not there. Mm -hmm. Chekhov is off on his, a different assignment at the beginning uh, of Star two. Trek Two. Yes, he's off on a different assignment. It's a training mission. So Spock's now captain and all that. But, mm -hmm. you know, again, you've got these other guys kind of hanging out. But by the time this one rolls around, because two, three, and four are like one big story. Sure, sure. So it makes sense for them to all be together there. By the time you get to part five, yeah, these guys should probably all have been reassigned. Yeah. And most of them should have been promoted to captains of their own ships because they're 20-year space veterans at this point. Right. And in the real Navy, yeah, you'll do a shift. You'll do like four years on a ship somewhere, and then they'll send you to another one. You don't keep the whole crew together mm -hmm. for 20 years on a destroyer. And it just doesn't make any sense to do that. It's the fiction in science fiction. You sure, know, sure. You just kind of have to roll with it. So the movie opens June 9th, 1989, a very crowded summer. With a lot of big movies on the schedule. But there was only one movie asking the question, why are they putting seatbelts in theaters this summer? It's on the teaser poster. And I gotta tell you, this is the only one of the original six movies for Star Trek that I didn't see in a theater. Oh, really? Okay. I didn't see it until like a year later or something when it was on HBO. We recorded it off HBO. Saw it all the time then because we had a tape of it. But I don't know, maybe it's like one of those things where... You hear about whenever there's a horrible plane crash and it's like, oh, the plane was only two thirds full because 45 people canceled for some weird reason. Maybe I had that. Maybe I had that instinct of like, yeah, I think I can skip this one. <laughs> well, buckle up. Get ready for this car crash. We're talking about Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. So we kick off the movie. 
on the planet of Nimbus 3 in the neutral zone. Of course it's in the neutral zone. Why wouldn't it be? It's where all the good stuff happens. Yeah, that's where all the action is. Which the titles tell us is the planet of galactic peace. A barren wasteland filled with smoking holes. And we see this guy digging. What's he digging for? The holes are like five feet apart. If it's water, that's not how water works. <laughs> I didn't find any water here. Yeah, let me move over a foot and a half. I'm sure it's here somewhere. We don't know what he's digging for. If it is water, that tree's not looking very good. Nimbus 3 makes Arrakis look like Cancun. You're a fucking nerd. No one likes you. So a rider on a horse approaches. And we cut between the two in a way that reminds me of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> so I'm probably going to intercut that where Sir Lancelot's running across the field and you cut back to the guys. So the digger runs for his weapon like he just took a dump in his pants. That was the only take you got? Could you run differently? If you want to look like you're not healthy, could you maybe just limp instead? What the hell is that run? <laughs> That's the one you went with? <laughs> so the guy grabs his weapon, which apparently uses rocks as ammunition. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because he's grabbing the gun and he's reaching into this pouch and there's little rocks falling on the ground. And well, I kind of had the thought, like with that, if, you've, if you're out in the middle of the wilderness and you have a weapon there for protection, I would think you would be a little bit more prepared with it in the event of an emergency, rather than having to scramble and, oh, crap, I've got to load my gun now. Well, I would think it would have been ready and prepared. No, there's nothing else out there. He's got it leaned up against the tree. I don't have a problem with that so much as I do with what he's using for ammunition. The thing that makes a gun work is that all of your rounds are the same size and shape. Mm-hmm. They okay. have to fit the barrel. They have to go in the chamber of this weapon to be propelled out of it. Rocks are never the same size and shape. If you have one that's too big, this is, I imagine it's a compressed air gun, like a BB gun sure, or sure. something like that. So if you have a rock that's too big and gets lodged in the barrel, mm-hmm. the compressed air will build up and the gun will explode. If you have a round that is too small, the air will move around it and it either won't propel out as fast or it won't move the round out at all. And the next one you put in will back up and mm-hmm. then that causes all other kinds of problems. It doesn't make any sense. You don't go to a gun store, ask for a box of bullets, and they give you bullets that are all different sizes and shapes. You have to have ones that specifically fit this. What would have been better is if they had ball bearings or something. Oh, sure. Okay. Because those were like cannonballs little on a smaller scale. Why don't we do that? Yeah. Because a rock gun doesn't make any sense. <laughs> That's one nit I'm going to pick there. So the guy on the horse gets up to him, and he talks to him, and apparently he's some kind of a mind control wizard, because he says he wants the guy to share his secret pain, to take away its power. We don't really see how he does this at mm-hmm. this point. All we hear is, like, this heartbeat sound. Right. The music is the only indication that anything has changed. We don't know what happened. The first of several times this takes place over the course of the movie, and I still never understood what exactly yeah, what the dude was doing. Don't know. <laughs> uh, the man on the horse is played by Lawrence Luckinbill. The producers wanted Sean Connery, but he was busy on a different movie. He was in Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade. I kind of don't see Connery taking this role. Not when he's working with Spielberg, certainly. <laughs> like, saying, even if he wasn't busy, I can't imagine him saying yes to have come to do this movie. You have chosen wisely. I mean, it depends on how much money you threw at him, but... I guess. This movie had budget problems. Now, Lawrence Luckinbill is mostly a stage actor. He's done just a few TV and movies, nothing real big. Star Trek V is still his most recent film appearance. Oh, really? He yeah. hasn't anything since this? Nope. Wow. The, not in films. Did you know he is the uncle to the Wachowski brothers, or Wachowski sisters, or Wachowskis, whatever they are, the people who made the matrix no i didn't know that yeah he's their uncle all right and he's also married to lucy arnaz 
Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz's daughter. Well, there's your Star Trek coming now full circle. Yeah, because Desi Lu is the studio that first produced Star Trek back in 1967. So Hollywood is just the most goddamn incestuous place. <laughs> I swear to Christ, it's ridiculous. So in order to repay him, the man on the horse asks the digger to join his quest, which is, again, like Monty Python. <laughs> he asks, what do you seek? <laughs> join my quest. What is it you seek? What? Your quest to seek the Holy Grail. As the man brings his horse closer, we see that it has a horn on its head. So this is a space horse <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> it's not a unicorn because the horn's not big enough, but it can't just be a horse. It's got to be a space horse. Almost from a different planet. They've evolved differently over, over the course of time there. Yeah, I'm sure that horn's real useful for something. <laughs> <laughs> so then the man pulls back his hood and reveals that he has pointed ears, which means he's a Vulcan. Gasp! It's like, it's funny because he pulls the hood off and then like looks away like, yep, uh, just making sure you get a really good look at these ears. Did you catch those ears? And then laughs I like got, a maniac. I got pointed ears. Yes. Uh, he really wants you to see those ears. And then he, yeah, he starts laughing for some reason. I think right from the start, this is one of these problems with this movie compared to four. Four was for the normies. This one is for the hardcore nerds because normies aren't going to sit there and look at this guy and go, okay, why... Why is he laughing? What am I supposed to be taking away from this? Right. Whereas the nerds would go, oh, he's a Vulcan. He's not supposed to be laughing. He's supposed to have gotten rid of his emotions. Everyone else is just going, what the hell is this? <laughs> so this one starts out of the gate expecting people in the audience to know a lot more about Star Trek sure. than the last one did. And then we get to the opening credits, and I'm going to give credit where credit is due. Jerry Goldsmith is back. Right on. Uh, his first Star Trek movie in 10 years. And we get a nice rousing rendition of the theme from Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, in fairness, it was in the, the original motion picture and then was adapted for The Next Generation. Yes, but the original motion picture was 10 years earlier. And <laughs> the last couple of years, people would have just heard it on television. So sure, if they sure. weren't familiar with that, they were going, hey, why are they playing the music from the TV show here? Which is what some people thought. They were confused. He would also come back to do the theme from Voyager in the mid-90s, and he would also do three of the four Next Generation movies. So he was being brought back into the fold, which is nice. The James Horner scores were really, really good, and I like those a lot. The one for part four is really kind of meh, mm. so it's nice to get Jerry Goldsmith back in. And we don't get to talk about the music in some of these movies a lot, because sometimes the music just isn't worth talking about. Sure. Like in Battlefield Earth, and like in The Blob, it's just, yeah, it's there, but Hey, they, not they really. can't all be head, man. No, no, we can't all get the monkeys to do the music for our movies. So then as the credits go away, we go to Yosemite National Park. All the stuff in Yosemite was actually filmed on location. They also give us the star date. Like, we know what the hell that means. <laughs> Why not just say it's Thursday or something? I don't know. Star date 9542.3. Is it okay? I don't know star dates. It doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah, but it's been that way since the beginning. None of them have ever I guess, made any sense, really. The long shots of the mountain climber are all done for real with mm -hmm. real stunt doubles. And I think they had like two or three different guys that were actually scaling uh, El Capitan here. The close-ups of Shatner were done on a fiberglass replica, which was positioned to give the illusion that it was right there at El Capitan. It's funny because after the first day's shooting, they were looking at the dailies and they saw that there was a tree in the shot, despite the fact he's supposed to be like thousands of feet in the air. <laughs> so, yeah, we wouldn't be able to see any trees right next to it. So they had to go back and reshoot <laughs> the first day. Now, interesting, I don't know if you caught oh, this, but oh. apparently this is the first and only time that a film crew has been allowed to film there. The story's already bullshit. <laughs> and a lot of this has to do, apparently, with 
I guess the point of this, I was kind of watching some of the, the interviews with Shatner uh, as they were making the movie. The whole thought being that here, even, you know, in the 23rd century, Yellowstone's still there. We've taken care of this pristine uh, space over the course of centuries, and it's still, you know, a wonderful spot to, like, go and and it's been preserved and, and it's a you know tribute to nature and kind of from a, a green sort of perspective where, where you want to take care of the earth and, and all of that. Then there's like this cosmically conscious message. It kind of comes in with some of what Shatner's done in, in parts of the film here. Uh-huh. 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 Listen, shut up for a second. That's cool. I didn't know that uh, nobody else had been allowed to film there. I think the only other place I saw that filmed anything there was the Kane Mutiny. I think showed part of it when the guy's on shore leave. Mm. But that was back in the 50s, so... Mm. Do you want to change your bullshit story, sir? Now, he could have been tooting his own horn there, you know, something. I, I didn't, you know, check him on it, but that's what William Shatner tooting his own horn? <laughs> what? No! <laughs> if you don't do it, nobody else will. What's funny, too, is uh, Yosemite also appears to be very deserted. Right. <laughs> There's, like, nobody else there. You can find pictures online of dozens of people all trying to climb the mountain at the same time. <laughs> and it's like, all of a sudden, yeah, there's nobody there but Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. So I guess it's not a popular tourist attraction mm-hmm. anymore. <laughs> I guess it's easy to preserve if you don't let anybody in the place. <laughs> Spock shows up on rocket boots to tell Kirk that the record for free climbing El Capitan is in no danger of being broken. The thing is, what Kirk is doing, he's not just free climbing. He's doing what they call free solo climbing. Mm -hmm. That's where you have no ropes, no harnesses, no protective equipment, no nothing. In real life, El Capitan was not free solo climbed until 2017. They even made a movie about it called Free Solo that followed the guy as he did it. So it's like he's trying to do something that nobody in real life would do for almost 30 years. Oh, wow. So that to me is kind of like, wow, he was really thinking ahead. So, because Spock is distracting Kirk, he slips and falls, and the stunt was actually done by a guy named Ken Bates, which set the record for the highest American descender fall. He did have a wire support rig, but that's a real guy actually, you know, taking a spill off the mountain. Unfortunately, the actors don't have it so good. No, but they had a fantastic blue screen. The state of the (laughs) rear screen projection. Oh my God. Probably the fakest looking effect in Star Trek movies to this point. Oh my goodness. And here you're just like, oh no. (laughs) Oh no. And here's where we run into another issue with the movie is the producers wanted ILM to do the effects because they had done them for all the other Star Trek movies for two, three and four anyway, but they were book solid. They were doing Indiana Jones and the last crusade. They were doing Ghostbusters too, and they didn't have anybody else to work on Star Trek. So they turned to Bran Farron who had done little shop of horrors. Okay. They gave his company three months to complete the effects, which is about half of the usual time. Because of that, Farron opted for quicker and cheaper rear screen projection instead of blue screen compositing. Oh, okay. And the studio had budgeted $4 million for special effects, which was just a little bit more than Star Trek IV, half of which, you know, takes place on Earth, where you didn't need that many effects. A lot of effect shots were cut out from the movie altogether due to time and budget constraints. They were going in pre-production and saying, okay, we can't have this, we can't have this, we can't have that. Uh, Shatner wants angels and demons at the end. No, there's no way we can do that. He wants uh, we'll, he wants rock men instead. Um, how many? Four rock men? No, you can have one rock man. They were just whittling stuff out before anything even got started. Hmm. And it's kind of, he, he described... At one point, I think it was on one of the commentary tracks, where he's saying, yeah, $30 million sounds like a lot of money, but it's also a low-budget movie if you need $35 million. Yeah. If you're running short, it doesn't matter what the number you have is if you're still coming up short with things. 
Spock uses his rocket boots to catch Kirk, and Bones comes running up to them, and the shot is upside down so that you can't, or you're not supposed to be able to tell that it's not DeForest Kelly who's actually running, because it isn't. <laughs> this is the same trick they did in Back to the Future 2, where they had George McFly show up on this little oh, right, rocket right. thing, and he's upside down so you can't tell it's not Crispin Glover. Yeah. Because DeForest Kelly was 68 when they filmed this movie, and there is no way in hell he's running like that. So we then go to Paradise City, which, in 1989, how do you separate that from the Guns N' Roses song? <laughs> it seems like it's just got the name so they can do a Paradise Lost gag, because they've written yeah, Lost. Right, right. It's like, dude, you haven't heard that song? You don't think people are going to see this and instantly start singing, where the grass is green and the girls are pretty? <laughs> oh, God. So we get to see a cross between a Wild West saloon and the Star Wars Cantina. We don't get any snazzy musical numbers, though. There is a cat woman with three boobs right on. dancing on the bar. This is what happens when you order Coyote Ugly from Wish. Don't! <laughs> Although she does predate the three-titted woman from Total Recall by a year. Oh, okay. So, so there Star you go. Trek gets the... Uh... Star Trek is setting the trends. Right on. So then we meet our three ambassadors. The Romulan is played by Cynthia Gao, who is probably better known as a news anchor. She was a little bit of a model and an actress before, but now she's just like a, a news reporter. And the interesting thing here with, with her is that as a character, there's nothing about her really that speaks Romulan to me until it's like brought out in dialogue. Oh, she's Romulan. All right. I wouldn't have got that. She has pointed ears. <laughs> <laughs> that's about all you're getting. That's, that's really about it. Yeah. Cause there's nothing else that's been established as how Romulans are portrayed is reflected in any way, shape, or form with her character. We have seen very, very little of Romulans in the Star Trek movies at this point. Right. There might have been some that showed up in part four. Okay. At the end, maybe, just in the whole big group setting. But originally in Star Trek Three, the bad guys were supposed to be the Romulans, and they changed it to the Klingons, which is why their ship is a bird of prey. Okay. Because it was supposed to be a Romulan thing originally. The Terran ambassador is David Warner, who would go on to do a lot more Star Trek. He plays Chancellor Gorkhan in Star Trek VI. Mm -hmm. He also plays Gol Madrid in The Next Generation in a nice two-part episode called Chain of Command. It's like the 1984 one. He's the guy who's torturing Captain Picard, asking him how many lights there are. That's a really good show. Charles Cooper plays the Klingon. He's a, mostly a character actor who also would play Klingons in a couple of Next Gen episodes. And he provides us with the Star Trek series' first burp joke <laughs> <sighs> yeah we'll have more to say about the humor in this film as we go along they give us exposition things that they would probably already know themselves but they're sure. talking to the audience they explain that nimbus 3 is a planet being developed by the three powers the federation the klingons and the romulans but it is a dismal failure people on the planet the neutral zone yeah Why would you do that I, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to have the planet of galactic peace that's going to be this joint venture between all these various factions <laughs> in the neutral zone. <laughs> I didn't get that. I don't know. <laughs> the people were forbidden weapons, but they made their own. But I mean, really, anything can be used as a weapon, though. I mean, you say, right. you can't have weapons. Oh, somebody hit me over the head with a stick. Well, we need to ban sticks because somebody used it as a weapon. What do you think they were going to do? So at this time, Paradise City comes under attack, and the ambassadors are taken hostage. The Romulan says that their governments will stop at nothing to ensure their safety. I will give you three guesses as to which one of these factions does not send a rescue ship. <laughs> and the first two don't count. <laughs> we have to talk about Kenny Rogers' Jesus riding in on the horse. 
like you know he's coming into Jerusalem to claim his spot or something. Like the <laughs> the allegory here was just like it makes more sense now that you pulled out what you did about Shatner being fascinated with all the televangelists and stuff. But yeah, the undertones as he comes riding in the town with these people, like oh look, okay, I, I see what they did there. Couldn't find a donkey. Come on, man. If you're gonna go, go all the way. All right, so now we get reused footage from Star Trek Four as we get a look at the new Enterprise and space dock. Star Trek was never shy about reusing footage in their <laughs> movies. From the second movie on, every single movie has reused footage at some point. And I think that continued up until Star Trek First Contact in 1996. Star Trek II reused the footage from the opening shot of Star Trek The Motion Picture with the Klingon ships for the Kobayashi Maru scene. Uh-huh. Part three reused the ending of part two at the beginning. It also uses uh-huh. like the, the stuff with Spock in the radiation chamber. Part four used some of the same flying shots of the Klingon bird of prey. Part five reuses the stuff from the end here. Part six, I think, also reused some bird of prey shots. Generations just flat out copies the explosion of the bird of prey from part six. <laughs> they didn't change anything about it. They didn't even flip the directions to make it look slightly different they just used the exact same footage so anything they could do to save a buck it's like we don't have to do any more of these model shots for this production if we can reuse something paramount was so goddamn cheap with star trek sometimes Mm. it's really annoying it's like these movies are profitable you are making money on these things and they were always looking for ways to scrimp and save a couple bucks it goes back to the 60s where they had them using plastic cups from the commissary to make it look like control panels because we got a budget of 15 dollars for this episode (laughs) Ah, well. For some reason, the new Enterprise is a lemon. (laughs) I don't get it. Yeah, that's the biggest thing here, that they go out of their way to establish that the Enterprise is not up to snuff, they've got some issues and they're working out, but yeah, that's the big thing that jumps out to me, it's like, this thing's brand new. How can there be this many problems with something that just rolled out of space dock, like, less than a year before? I think part of the problem with that comes from the happy ending of Part 4, where they just happen to have a brand new Enterprise-class ship that they just happened to rename the Enterprise and slap an A on it to give to these guys. I think it was one of those things that was alluded to as they talk about, hey, they're going to decommission the Enterprise in the first place. Mm -hmm. And everybody freaks out about that. But I think that was sort of the unspoken, don't ruin the surprise. We got another one for you. Just go with it. Yeah, but that was the thing. It was unspoken. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, that's the funny thing here is that you got this brand new starship and, and it's broken. Fuck! Even in the future, nothing works! And we'll definitely talk more on that in a little bit, because it's a big plot point. For some other reason, Scotty and Uhura are now a couple. And this is so out of the blue, I don't even know where to start. Mm -hmm. This was never hinted at in any episode of the TV show, in any of the other movies. It's just all of a sudden a thing. I don't know why. They've spent a long long time together. They've gotten to know each other and decided, hey, let's, let's try this. I guess, but it's just boom. Just I mean, all she's of a like the only female on the crew. You got to figure she's getting it on with somebody in the in the mix there, right? I guess there's bound to be some kind of an attraction with somebody when I don't you know. spend all that time with them. I didn't know she would pick the big <laughs> fat guy. <laughs> uh. <laughs> no, I like Scotty and all that, but you know we're just friends. <laughs> so they receive a red alert, even though they know the ship is in no condition to do anything. So they start recalling personnel. They mention that they've got less than a skeleton crew on board, which is weird because a skeleton crew is literally defined as the minimum number of people you need to keep something operational. Mm -hmm. So why are there less than that? Well, because they're in space dock. Yeah, but you would still have a skeleton crew. Like, when they're working on ships, if they're trying to keep them at least functional, you would need X number of people. You don't take away from that. I suppose, yeah. 
So they start recalling people. Sulu and Chekhov are also running around in the woods, lost. And when Uhura calls them, they claim to be stuck in a blizzard, and Chekhov blows into Sulu's communicator. I just wrote, insert gay joke here. You got any? <laughs> now I'll pass. Dynamite drop-in money. That broadcast school has really paid off. All right. <laughs> and now we get the campfire scene. And to me, at this point, it's very obvious that the movie is suffering from a tone problem. They are trying too goddamn hard to be funny. Not just here, but through the entire movie. And they're turning Kirk, Spock, and McCoy into the Three Stooges. All they're missing are pies and eye pokes. It's, it's a buddy film. It's trying too hard, though. It's, <laughs> it's forced. The humor in part four came about organically. Yeah, sure, it it sure. came from the situation. You know, it was a fish out of water story, and the audience gets to laugh as these sophisticated people from the far future who are used to dealing with all kinds of high-tech stuff have to get along with all the silly shit that we take for granted putting up with every day. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're able to just go through it, and we can laugh at how they struggle with trying to figure out a computer before you could talk to Siri or whatever. Right. Figure that out. Trying to figure out what exact change is on a bus. But that's funny. This is like... We're just watching these guys act like dickheads. They're just wisecracking smartasses. <laughs> and we also haven't seen them act like this before, to I, this extent. I thought McCoy in particular was a little bit more aggressive towards Spock. A little, yeah. Rudely so. Yeah. Not just in the witty banter, sort of like the gentle ribbing that you're used to. He was a little bit more over the top in, in terms of offensively aggressive. Oh, he's drunk! I mean, it's nice to see them in a different environment, you know, out on shore leave, hanging out around a campfire, that sort of thing. And the scene does get a little bit better as they start talking a little more seriously. Kirk tells the others that he always, you know, he's always known that he'll die alone. Mm -hmm. And then it gets silly again with marshmallows and singing. And we are not getting anywhere fast in this movie. <laughs> you don't need the scene to be this long and awkward. And but but you don't know, row, 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 row your boat? <laughs> no. <laughs> Come no. on, Spock's never been camping before. He's got to learn these earth customs, again, that we take for granted. It's Yeah. It's... He, had to, he had to look it up on the computer and learn. And... Yeah. <laughs> so we go back to space, where a Klingon bird of prey shoots and destroys an old Voyager space probe. Correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't the first movie revolve around one of these things achieving consciousness and returning to Earth, threatening to destroy it? Like how the mighty have fallen. Now it's just space junk to get That, that one drifted up. off in a different direction than this one. This one was just kind of... I guess. But I don't know if that's a commentary on, hey, remember that first movie where one of these things was godlike in nature? And we're not doing that. <laughs> so we are introduced to Captain Claw and his crew... This is back in the day where white people were still allowed to play Klingons. It's all different now, apparently. Mm. He shoots the probe, which is said to be difficult, most difficult, to hit. Even though it's just moving in a straight line, it's not like it's doing evasive maneuvers or anything. He blows it up real good, and it sounds like it screams when he shoots it. I don't know why. It's weird. And this bird of prey has a periscope, for some reason. The last one didn't, but this one does. I guess it's a different model but it's weird that you have to be sitting in the captain's chair to say, the, shoot the The captain weapons. would be the guy doing that, not the gunner or somebody in a different yeah, station. Yeah, it seems right? like you shouldn't have one of these, but all right, whatever. This guy likes to take things into his own hands. So the captain decides to go to Nimbus 3 to fight a Federation starship when they get the signal talking about the hostage situation. They're not being ordered there. 
the Klingons just get to decide for themselves what missions they accept. <laughs> like, hey, we got this news broadcast about a hostage situation. All right, yeah, fuck it, we'll go. Is it just like World of Warcraft? You're like, oh, hey, I got this mission. I'll go over here and do this quest. I mean, this guy seems like trouble. He's kind of out here doing his own thing. Wouldn't the Klingons also order someone to go there? Because what's to stop 10 of their ships from getting the same message and just all showing up for the fun of it? Mm -hmm. Then you've got 10 ships in one sector. Meanwhile, everyone else is running around in your space doing whatever the hell they want. That's why you have orders. <laughs> this doesn't seem very efficient if you're trying to get people. And what's to guarantee any of them are showing up anyway? Right. Maybe they all get the signal and just go, nah, fuck it, I'm busy. Uh, I'm like busy watching TV. The motivation here, of course, is different, too. He's not going to rescue the Klingon ambassador that's been in, involved in, in what's going on. It's strictly, there's going to be a Federation ship there. I'm going to go blow some shit up. Yeah. And see, so he sounds like trouble. They should send a signal to a particular ship and say, go get these guys. But no, they're just like reading the news and they're like, huh, we could go there. So a shuttlecraft takes Kirk, McCoy, and Spock to the Enterprise because the transporters are out. And this is the third movie now in which the captain has to get to the Enterprise by some sort of a shuttle because the transporters aren't working. Fuck! Even in the future, nothing works! It's like, we've seen this before, man. Can, mm -hmm. we, can we just beam up once? For some reason, the communications department head is the one who's got to fly the shuttle down and get them. I guess she doesn't have anything else to do. Go send her down in a shuttlecraft. They don't have any pilots. There should just be, like, some yeah, low-ranking guy to go get them. I'm, right. I mean, I guess it really is a skeleton crew, right? Now, this is the first time we've seen the classic-era-looking shuttlecraft in these movies. Before, when they're getting transported, it's like in one of those little worker pods. But this right. time, it's like the old-school shuttlecraft. That's a nice touch. But for some reason, when it lands... There's smoke and steam coming out of it that doesn't make any friggin' sense. <laughs> it's the effects department, man. Has we got to keep these guys busy. never been established in any Star Trek continuity that this is a thing. And that, that was a very distracting, what the hell is all that? Yeah. It's almost as distracting as the steps that they bring out for these guys to step down from. Those steps came from Patrick Stewart's trailer. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff in this movie. It's funny because Next Generation was in production at the time, so they actually reused a lot of Next Generation sets and props and stuff in the background. Okay. So you can see little things that show up in some of the TV episodes in the background of the Enterprise. Some of the hallways, they've kind of rejiggered to make look a little bit different, but they're all Enterprise D hallways ah, and, okay. and such, and they would do that in the next movie as well. So, again, kind of double dipping and trying to save on building sets and everything for your movies when you've already got the TV show set up. Budgetary benefits aside, I mean, it's kind sure. of nice for building continuity, I think. Unintentionally uh, so, but still kind of cool. I mean, they made them look different enough, but we'll talk more about these hallways here when we get to a, another part in the movie. Okay. The Enterprise is a mess. Even by accident, fucking nothing is working. Fuck! Even in the future, nothing works! <laughs> When he gets to the bridge, it reminds me a little bit of the motion picture where they were trying to get their systems operational after the refit. There's people running around, uh -huh. all the computer panels are open, and exactly. they're, they're working on stuff there. It's almost exactly the same thing. There was a lot of chaos on the bridge in that one, too. So it's almost like they're ripping themselves off with that. The woman handing the captain his jacket is Shatner's daughter, Melanie. Oh, okay. So nepotism a oh, little bit. And the admiral giving Kirk the assignment is Harv Bennett, the producer. He tells Kirk that there are other ships but no experienced commanders. Mm -hmm. He needs Jim Kirk. Yes, which is fine. I get that. He doesn't need the broken Enterprise. The Excelsior is sitting right there. <laughs> Don't say it's not, because we saw it in the reused shot from Star Trek IV. The Excelsior is sitting right there. Right. 
take them if to the Excelsior. If you need one man, put him on a different ship and send the ship that's functional. And has a crew uh-huh. and everything else. Take it over there. That, that would make a lot more sense. That would make a hell of a lot more sense. And we'll get into more of that there. I think a really cool idea would have been, and this would probably make some Trek fans really mad, don't even have the Enterprise in this one. Put them on the Excelsior. Mm-hmm. Like, they get recalled from whatever shore leave. Yeah, we don't have a new ship for you yet. Give it to them at the end of this one. But in this case, send them to the Excelsior. And if it's got to have problems, it's because Scotty sabotaged it. And stuff <laughs> is still broken. So he thought he was undoing something from the transwarp drive, and it screwed the computer up. And okay. they're still trying to fix it. I think that would have that been would a really cool, good yeah. idea. It's like, yeah, we don't have a new Enterprise for you. Sorry, we don't just build ships instantly for you to use. We've got this other ship, but it's still kind of messed up. And since Scotty broke it, Scotty should be fixing it. <laughs> and then put him on that, and then it's got the problems. And that way you take the onus off of the Enterprise, because we're already suffering from an Enterprise problem in this movie. One, it's not really the Enterprise. The ship from the TV show and all the other movies got blown up in part three. Right. So even though this says Enterprise, it's not really the Enterprise. Sure. It's not it's the one that has been through. It's a class ship that has been named the Enterprise. Yeah, right. and it's not, it hasn't been through all these adventures. The audience already doesn't feel any attachment to it. And on top of that, it's a pile of junk. You are not making friends fast. So I think you could have eliminated that problem, put them on the Excelsior, let them do whatever in that ship. Because nobody likes the Excelsior anyway. That's the bad guy's ship mm. from the other movie. But there's a nice gag here, though. Kirk misses his old chair. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I miss the old ship. Oh, well. The Klingons get word that the Enterprise is going to Nimbus 3, and Captain Claw and his woman both get boners talking about defeating Captain Kirk in battle. She is a manly-looking woman. They got a couple bodybuilders to play these parts. I'm trying to think if we had seen a Klingon woman since the original series. And when we did, they didn't look like that. Right, right. Had the Duras sisters shown up in Next Generation by Season 2? I don't remember. So this might have been the first time we saw Klingon might have women been. in a and, while. And, and, and it's interesting here because the the interesting political undertones are how she's like the puppet master. She's the one that's running the show behind the scenes. Because she's a woman, she can't have her own command, but she's like the stronger leader, the stronger personality of the two. So she's like egging the other guy on. She's doing Lady Macbeth. Hey, yeah. you beat this guy up. We're going to have some fun at night. Right. Yeah, even the captain's log recorder doesn't work. Fuck! Even in the future, nothing works! I especially like the light that specifically says system failure. <laughs> That's the only purpose it would have, to light up to indicate a system failure. So they knew it was junk when they gave it to them. Again, why is the ship such a mess? This is ridiculous. The ship recorder should have nothing to do with the actual ship itself. I imagine these things have been around for a while, but maybe not. So they get a scratchy distress signal... And Spock recognizes the Vulcan on the recording, but he still doesn't tell us who he is. He eventually tells Kirk and McCoy that the unknown Vulcan reminds him of a gifted scholar who rejected the logical Vulcan way and sought to learn emotions as the key to self-knowledge. They take the Enterprise to Nimbus 3. When they get there, the transporters are still not working. Fuck! Even in the future, nothing works! This could be the easiest rescue mission ever if you had any other ship in Starfleet. All you got to do is beam these fuckers up. I don't know. If you had a working ship, I suppose you could say they have some sort of a thing that you can't transport people in and out of, whatever, so that you could still send the shuttlecraft. But the fact that this is just so retarded that you don't have a ship with working transporters is... uh, They couldn't just borrow another ship. 
It is kind of neat seeing soldiers in Star Trek, like mm-hmm. the Marine guys getting ready to do this mission, the rescue operation, because you imagine that they would have every time in these things where they talk about boarding parties. These are the guys that are getting ready to go out and take over other ships and whatnot. Right. So it's kind of cool to get to see them in action. And also kind of fun is seeing Chekhov get to pretend to be the captain. I do like that. So with the Klingon ship approaching, they're pressed for time, but they have to land far from the city to keep from being picked up on radar. To speed things up, they spot an outpost of guards with space horses. <laughs> but they need a distraction. <laughs> okay. Here comes that scene. <laughs> the scene where Commander Uhura, a 20-year space veteran, the communications department head on the Starship Enterprise, a legendary member of the Enterprise's crew, has to perform a naked fan dance in order to get the attention of some horny desert dwellers, complete with singing and music. Who's playing the music? This is like in those old Elvis movies where he just starts singing a song and suddenly bongos and everything start playing. Where's these drums coming from? What the hell is this? Nichelle Nichols was 55 years old. Who under the age of 70 is getting excited about seeing a naked 55-year-old. Uh, well, you can't you can't tell that from the shadows and the backlight. You just see this nice, alluring figure. You, you don't know any context about who it is or their age until you get right up there. I guess, but when you get close, it's like the worst version of Uhura, too. It's the one where she has the gray hair, right. <laughs> which they got rid of for the next movie. They were like, put some dye in that. Forget the aging gracefully thing. Let's take this back a notch. Holy shit. <laughs> so David Lowry, the screenwriter, during pre-production meetings, suggested as a joke that Uhura do a fan dance for the distraction. And he was stunned when the producers wanted to go with the idea. Oh, good grief. I guess the moral of the story is never make a joke during a production meeting because some (laughs) asshole might take you seriously and you get the most embarrassing scene in the movie. That's one of the the points that definitely stands out as the okay this this doesn't really make a whole lot of sense for if you really want to nitpick things there's there's lots of stuff that that kind of like okay yeah that that's silly but this is like one of the, the handful of things that really jumped out to me as the what was the point of that could have been worse they could have had Sulu do the fan dance while they're playing it's raining men <laughs> oh my he does these impersonations I swear you would think it was the real people. See, I found a gay joke in there somewhere. <laughs> so why are there so many horses in this movie? William Shatner is a big-time horse enthusiast. Okay. Has been for decades. That would make sense. Then. He's owned horse farms. He's bred and shown horses. He's won world championships with his horses, as a matter of fact, for his riding skill. He actually goes out and rides these horses, and he's won most recently in 2019. Ah. So this dude's pushing 90 years old at that point, mm-hmm. and he's winning world championships. So he is big-time in the horses. Has he ever had the opportunity to ride on film? Maybe that was just his excuse to be able to meld his... He bought his first horse as an accident. Okay. I'm, I'm trying to remember who he was with, but they were at an, an auction, just like, you know, people were showing horses and auctioning them off and whatnot. Whoever he was with, his kid was like, hey, you should buy that horse. And he's like, what do you mean buy a horse? I don't want to buy a horse. And he made some kind of a motion. The guy said, hey, there's a bid right there on the horse. And he ended up getting sold. Oh. I was kind of like, oh, <laughs> whoops. So he bought his first horse by accident. Interesting. But he, he's been in love with horses ever since. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure back in the day he rode horses, but he would also ride horses again in Star Trek Generations. Okay. So yeah, maybe yeah. that was one of the things where he was, yeah, we'll throw this in here too for you to come back and do this movie. So then we have the big action scene. As Kirk and company are discovered, and once they get in 
through the gates of Paradise City. And one of the bad guys has a space bazooka. I thought weapons were forbidden. This isn't like somebody making a pea shooter out of rocks. This mm -hmm. is a fucking space bazooka. Hey, 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 just remember now. When you ban weapons, it only bans the good guys from getting them. The bad guys are still going to get them. Yeah, but a space bazooka? <laughs> I can't get a phaser, but I've got a space bazooka. <laughs> All right. I can buy people making rock guns, I suppose, but the space bazooka seems a bit much. <laughs> so as the action scene goes on, Spock tells Kirk to hold his horse. <laughs> oh, boy. Again, the awkward. He's a Vulcan. He doesn't know these Earthisms. After that much time? <laughs> He's not a new Vulcan. Spock also gives a horse the Vulcan <laughs> neck pinch. So now I've seen everything. Right. <laughs> so Kirk fights his way inside the bar we saw earlier where he is attacked by the Catwoman. Okay, now I've seen everything. He literally throws her into the pool table. Sadly, this is not the last time Shatner had to deal with a woman floating in a pool. All of the 911 calls you will hear are real. What's your problem? My poor wife's at the bottom of the pool. Okay, did you get her out of the pool yet, sir? No, not yet. I want you to take her out of the pool right now, sir. I'm going to take her. She's not the very deep end. They're showing the, the wrath of Khan oh, good. In, in Jersey. They're going to show the emotion picture, and then uh, William Shatner will be available on stage for questions, and what the first one should be a detective. <laughs> I think the cops show up there, Shatner's bone dry. Oh, I did everything I could. He does these impersonations. I swear, you would think it was the real people. But it's a trap. The hostages are in on it, and Kirk and his crew are captured. Spock comes face to face with the laughing Vulcan, whose name is Cybok. Spock refuses to join him, and they are taken on the shuttle back to the Enterprise as prisoners. And the Klingon ship moves into attack, going into the cloaking device. Chekhov raises the shields, and the shuttle has to pull off a risky maneuver to get inside the Enterprise as quickly as possible before the Klingons can attack. It works. The effects aren't very good, but it works. The Enterprise escapes, but the shuttle's rough landing renders most everyone inside incapacitated. Kirk and Cybok recover first and fight over control of a rock gun. Cybok, being a Vulcan, of course, is much stronger, mm -hmm. overpowers Kirk. He loses the gun, which Spock picks up. Cybok refuses to surrender and tells Spock to kill him. And Kirk yells out to shoot him, but Spock does not. So Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are taken to the brig, while Uhura and Sulu are converted to Cybok's side. This, to me, is like the most out-of-character Kirk thing that I have seen. This is the same guy who in Star Trek Three, when he got into a fight with the guy who ordered the death of his son, offered to help him up when he was in danger of falling off a cliff into the lava. Mm. And now he's just telling Spock to shoot and kill this guy at point-blank range. I don't see this as being the same guy. Yeah, I can see that, right? I don't know. It just seems off to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when they get to the brig, Spock reveals that Cybok is his half-brother. <gasps> which is why he could not have shot him. And more awkward attempts at comedy ensue. So yeah, they're kind of rewriting things here or just maybe making them up as they go along. Mm -hmm. In original versions of the draft uh, of the script, Cybok was not related to Spock, but I think they just wanted him to have some more of a connection, but it really just leaves people kind of scratching their heads going, hey, how come we never heard about right. any of this before? It doesn't make sense. That's one of the things that happens a lot in a lot of these film franchises where everything starts to become 
so insulated and, and inbred from a perspective like that, where it's some characters are always having some kind of personal connection to some antagonist that comes in. And it's like unnecessary, and particularly in this case, like the entire story could have been exactly the same as it was without that particular detail. Yeah. That it didn't really add much or change. It's like anything. the longer you go on with these things, the more twisted and weird they get. So back on the bridge, the renegades take control of the ship and Chekhov is also turned to Cybok's side. It seems way too easy to take over the ship, though. Well, and again, there's never any explanation about what this weird mind control trick is that he's doing. Okay, so you've got the Vulcan mind meld that allows a Vulcan to share somebody's thoughts, but there's never been any kind of an established thing here where it's basically brainwashing masses of people here for some reason. And so this whole idea that he's explained of, oh, share your pain with me and now come join me on my quest has turned into brainwashing these guys into just blind following them. Even now, Starfleet guys that you would think would be a little bit more prone to resisting something like that as military type folks rather than just some random dude that's out in the middle of the desert at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, I mean, not even that. I don't mean just taking over the ship from like the mind control standpoint, but there's nobody else on the ship. I mean, Scotty sees these guys coming on and it looks like they're captured. So he can't find a group of people and say, hey, get some phasers and stuff. We got to go up to the bridge. Right. We got trouble. Hey, all those Marines we saw earlier. Maybe well, there's more security guys. Yeah, definitely. There might be some more of them. I know they left everybody else on the planet. They were supposed to go back and start bringing them up, but the Klingons show up and they had to leave right away. Mm-hmm. But the idea that there's still nobody else on the ship, there's no... Uh, Standard Starship's got over 300 crew members. Yeah. Yeah. There's no John McClane. Right. Trying right. To, to organize, like, hey, let's get a couple guys go up on the bridge and we're going to kick somebody's ass. So what exactly is a skeleton crew? Because in other parts, you see like maybe one or two people walking around the hallways. But even those one or two people don't try to organize any sort of resistance at all mm-hmm. to what's going on. It just seems odd. So Kirk and company try and fail to break out of the brig. And this is the point where Cybok makes a shipwide announcement and tells everyone they're going to a place called Shakari beyond the Great Barrier at the center of the galaxy. And this is where you see, like, the one or two people in the hallway. But as soon as people who aren't under his control hear this message, Mm -hmm. they should be like, oh, bullshit, get the phasers, we're going up to the bridge, and we got uh, got some work to do. But it never happens. Did his message also somehow convert people? Because it didn't convert Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. It don't make no sense. So Scotty breaks Kirk and company out of the brig by blowing a hole in the wall. How this doesn't set off any alarms, I don't know. The three set off to find an emergency transmitter, and Scotty knocks himself out on a pipe. He did the battlefield earth. He just walked into it. He didn't turn around and smack his head. Yeah. He's just walking walking forward and clunk. It's like John Travolta. He just walked right into a wall he could see. Crap, lousy ceiling. I thought I told you to get some man animals in here and fix it. For for all of the thing about the overabundance of humor in this movie, the slapstick in in a case like this that's a little bit dumb it's like interstellar yeah with tars what's your humor setting tars that's 100 percent let's bring it on down to 75 please <laughs> let's cut the comedy down to about 20 percent of what you have right now and it would probably work better and the passages they're walking down are ridiculous <laughs> they're walking down one hallway where there's a pipe like 12 inches off the ground every junction has one of these pipes they have to step over in order to keep going how are people not tripping over these goddamn things all the time? It would make it impossible to move down the hallway. Like, later we see Sulu and them running down the hallway, and they're, like, leaping over these pipes like it's a video game. That does not seem like great design. 
And then the other hallways have beams coming out at like a 45 degree <laughs> angle. So you've only got two thirds of the available space to walk through right. without hitting your head. Well, these so, aren't like standard traffic areas, though. These are kind of like behind the scenes, not quite a Jeffrey's tube, but they're like, it's like the, a different area of the ship where you're, you're not going to have a lot of that kind of day-to-day activity. Well, sure, but that means these are for emergency use only. Yeah. So what do you have to do in an emergency? Most of the time, you got to move pretty fucking quick. So you're going to do that and risk banging your head every time you go through a junction, or you got to play Mario and jump over these pipes every time you're trying to get through a junction. i got to get through that door before it closes and traps me like mm-hmm. in Star Trek Two. Oh, no, wait, I tripped over one of the pipes. I guess I'm dead. Uh-huh. And the three guys behind me who just tripped over me because I fell, I guess they're dead too. What asshole designed this ship? <laughs> Fucking thing sucks! So they're trying to get up to the transmitter by using one of the abandoned turbo shafts. Or one that's down for repair or something like that. Right, so yeah. Kirk and McCoy start climbing up a very, very long ladder. Spock says, hey, you guys have fun. He vanishes. As soon as Kirk realizes Spock is missing, Spock shows up with his rocket boots. And he gets them to both cling on to him as he fires the booster rockets, and they quickly shoot upwards, passing decks 35, 52, 64, 52, 78, and 78, before stopping just before bonking their heads. (laughs) I didn't catch that. That's fantastic. (laughs) Even when I saw it when I was a kid, I noticed that. This is before I was even the nitpicky asshole I am today. I saw that, and I was like, really? (laughs) All you had to do was just... Find other numbers, dude. There are hundreds of numbers you could use, right? I was 14. Come on. Yeah, that to me was one of the more obvious continuity errors. Who, who was the editor on this? Anybody uh, major that worked in the I editing don't. chair that we blame for this, that we, we'd be shocked and amazed? Oh, I can't believe this. Not that I, I don't think this yeah. is a cool as I situation. I don't oh, okay. think there's anybody that you could look at and go, oh, my God. How did they start here with this? They just goofed up. They figured it's fast enough cutting. Nobody's going to catch it. Right. All right. So the three get to the emergency transmitter and activate it and send a message that is almost immediately answered by Starfleet Command. Like, back on Earth, Starfleet Command? I know it's science fiction, but do you have any idea how long a message would take coming from a ship that is approaching the center of the galaxy (laughs) to get from Earth? I mean, it's got to be at least 60 seconds, right? So if this ship were hanging out around Pluto a message sent would take 4.6 hours to get to Earth. And then the message coming back would take another 4.6 hours to get to them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they are nowhere near Pluto. <laughs> now, that's speed this, of light. This is 23rd century technology here now, though. Sure. That's different. I mean, they've never had problems with that. I know they've been out exploring everything. It's just funny that it's like that quick they got yeah, a hold right. of Earth. Nobody is the least bit suspicious that they answered you so quickly. But it does make a little bit more sense because it's not actually Earth answering them. It's the Klingons. They've intercepted the message. So nobody was suspicious of the quick answer, which, all right, fine, whatever. Science fiction. She had a great accent. Sure, why not? (laughs) She didn't sound like a Klingon. So Cybok and his followers catch them just after they send the message. And Cybok attempts to woo him, uh, woo them to his side. And there are more hijinks in sickbay as Uhura fawns over Scotty. Serious cringe. Oh, gosh. Please stop this. Poor Nichelle Nichols in this movie. Oh, my gosh. Cybok explains that Shakari is known throughout every culture as the source of creation, as heaven. And Cybok explains that his power frees people's minds from fear, and once that happens, nothing can stop them. But why that means that they have to join him and do what he says, 
is still not explained. Right. But what's coming up here is by far the best scene in the movie. No, legit. I see you, like, smirking over there. No, seriously, this is the best scene in the movie. Okay. So we finally get to see what happens when Cybok does try to take People's Pan away. He works on McCoy, and McCoy is, like, kind of transported back to where his father is dying. Right, right, right. And to end his suffering, he has to euthanize him. And then the worst part, not very long after that happened, they found a cure. Mm -hmm. So he's been carrying this guilt around the whole time about killing his father. Right. And Cybok is able to convince him to let go of that. And DeForest Kelly is great in this scene. It's really well acted. It's serious. And the movie, when it's finally playing it straight, Mm -hmm. you see the potential that this movie could have had. Okay. You see this could work if it was doing this sort of thing. It's interesting that you're looking at this scene through that lens. And now that you're saying it, I think you're absolutely right. The dramatic piece of it here, particularly with McCoy's story, I think was really well done. But for me, I was entirely distracted by the fact that as this interaction is taking place with McCoy internally, apparently Spock and Kirk are witnessing it and able to see what's happening. And then as they each take their turns, they're all apparently able to witness and see what the other person's experiencing and going through. And that made absolutely no friggin' sense to me and took me completely out of it. Now, it doesn't make a lot of sense as far as that goes. You think it would be the individual person's thing where they're dealing with right it. and should it should be like a externally like this the briefest of seconds passing by as mm-hmm. all of this internal dialogue takes place within the person that's experiencing it but yeah the, we see the other characters in the room witnessing it in real time and that didn't make any friggin' sense so it completely overshadowed what you're calling out as otherwise a really really good scene i thought it was destroyed by taking it took me out of it it's kind of like in wrestling <laughs> When, when Hulk Hogan could see the Ultimate Warrior's reflection looking back at him in the mirror in 1998, and he's freaking out, and the announcers, Bobby Heenan and Tony Schiavone, they can see the warrior in the mirror, and they're freaking out, and Eric Bischoff is standing right next to Hulk Hogan, and apparently he's the only one that can't see the warrior in the mirror, because they didn't get the memo that only Hulk Hogan should be able to see the warrior in the mirror. The other thing with Cybok is every time we've seen him do this trick, it just seems to take a couple seconds. Exactly. And this is like drawn out. Like the guy at the very beginning, it's a matter of seconds and he's, his pain is gone. Right. But in this time we actually get a couple minutes where we're seeing what's happening here. Which, like I said, the, the internal thing that takes place was nice, but I was, it was totally ruined by the fact that now you've got these intercut shots of Kirk and Spock watching, like Mm -hmm. they see this happening. They're there with him. And now they're realizing that this is what happened to McCoy too. I'm like, well, how... Are they able to see this? I don't know about that. I was just paying attention to the performances and the the scene itself, and it's it's, it's so good. It's like this movie could have it could have been something. It could have been a contender mm-hmm. instead of a bum, which is what it is. <laughs> if it just played things straighter, I think we could have gotten a much better movie. Yeah. So then, when he's done with McCoy, Cybok then shows Spock's birth and his father's disdain because he's got a half human son. Mm-hmm. You fucked an Earthling. I don't know what you expected. <laughs> What'd you think was going to happen, dude? You're lucky he's got pointed ears. So Kirk refuses to play along, and he says that the pain we carry with us is part of what makes us who we are, and you just can't get rid of it that easily. Mm-hmm. And that's a nice yeah. bit from Shatner, too. Right, here. Like he's really one. good at this. This works. Do more of this. Mm-hmm. So what do you think Kirk's pain would have been? Over these past couple of movies, my initial thought would be that it would be the loss of his son. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was thinking, too. Maybe some kind of regret that he wasn't able to to act fast enough. It was right. just kind of random 
random thing that you know his son got killed because it could have been any of the three that were on the planet at that time. Mm-hmm. But maybe some kind of guilt over that. But we'll never know. But that's that's okay. Yeah. Because there's been a lot of stuff that's happened. Now, in this scene, there's also a nice little bit of detail. As you see out the window, the Great Barrier, as the scene progresses, is like getting closer and closer and starting to fill more of the screen and whatnot. So that's a nice little touch. So Cybok instructs McCoy and Spock to come with him, but apparently they haven't been turned. You think McCoy, at least, would have maybe been, because it seemed to work on him, but Spock says that, I came to terms with this a long time ago, dude. This doesn't hold any power over me anymore. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going with you. And McCoy says, yeah, I, I guess I'm not going either. So now apparently you can just reject right. having been turned. But none of these other guys can. Now this was part of what was a holdup with the script, because in the original script, Spock and McCoy both do go with Cybok. Oh, okay. Both Leonard Nimoy and DeForest Kelly, and like everybody who read it is like, no, McCoy and Spock would not betray Kirk under any circumstances. That's not going to happen. So that was one of the sticking points where they are like, okay, well, I guess we'll change that because right. they aren't going to go along with it. It would have made more sense, though, if Cybok's bit is really that he's somewhat brainwashing them and convincing them against what they would otherwise naturally normally do. It would have made more sense that way, I think. But now, to your point, I mean, it kind of brings up the, well, what's special about these two guys that they were strong enough to resist it, whereas literally everybody else is just kind of going along for the ride. Well, not only that, it makes the other guys just seem like dicks. <laughs> like, you're still going along with this shit. You wanted to do this. <laughs> so, Cybok tells Kirk that his visions were given to him by God and that he waits for them on the other side of the Great Barrier. I saw God. Yeah, and this is, again, this is one of those points where... As that is revealed, you kind of, all right, well, if you're not going to take this seriously, then. (laughs) (laughs) I saw a god, man, far out. (laughs) So Kirk tells Cybok that he is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. So then the Enterprise enters a barrier of mediocre special effects (laughs) and passes through unscathed, finding a planet. They said before that no ship has ever returned, no probe they've sent into this thing has ever come back, but it seems ridiculously easy to get through this thing it's like right you just go through it seriously nobody just kind of dipped in and said huh that's there hey we should go back and report this all right (laughs) but we do get a row 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 your boat callback (laughs) if we're dreaming then life surely is a dream oh boy and then we get our trigger (laughs) warning for the movie as we see the original to boldly go where no man has gone before And everybody flips out because it's not gender neutral. Good thing that's been changed, right? That's a load off of my mind. I think they changed it for the next generation. I was going to say, yeah, that's actually an interesting call out because, yeah, Next Generation was in its second season at this time. They would have flipped the script on that to no one has gone before. Which they do at the end of Star Trek VI is where they change it in the original series for the first time. But, yeah, here it's still where no man has gone before. And it always pisses me off. It doesn't specifically mean men only. Man as man, in mankind. Mankind. Yeah. Humankind. Whatever. You know what it means. You're just being obtuse. Dicks. All right. So, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy just walk onto the bridge. Nobody else could do that with a bunch of phasers to retake the ship, but these guys go there and Cybok just hands the ship back to him. He knows that Kirk is curious as well and wants to explore the planet as badly as he does. So, he guessed right. So, Kirk goes to the planet in the shuttlecraft with Spock, McCoy, and Cybok. It's like daring Indiana Jones to go ahead and blow up the Ark. Sure. (laughs) Come on. Go ahead. Only not as cool. (laughs) The shuttlecraft begins flying itself, 
and the beeps the control panel makes are taken straight from 2001, A Space Odyssey. Uh-huh. The shuttle lands in the middle of nowhere, and Cybok stops Kirk from taking a phaser with him. I don't know how much good it would have done, but I'd rather have a phaser and not need it than need a phaser and not have it. Mm-hmm. I guess it's like the Luke Skywalker going into the cave. Right. But in this case, yeah, it probably would have come in handy. The location is the Trona Pinnacles with a purple filter over the lens. It's about three and a half hours from Los Angeles. Oh, okay. Those natural type spots out in the middle of the desert. And I think that was one of the things that stood out that I thought was weird is they, they do the external shots as the shuttlecraft's coming through. And they've done this odd exposure where, yeah, it's got this purple cast over it. But then by the time they land and they actually get out, it looks, it looks normal. Yeah, I don't know. It seemed like it was purplish the whole time. At least that I noticed. Maybe I missed a couple shots they didn't do it on or something. I mean, it, it wasn't like... It, it wasn't, wasn't super heavy. Yeah, yeah, but it was It was just when they actually got out and everything was... It looked normally like they were a little bit outside. Yeah. Just, What's the cheapest way we can make this not look like we're in the desert of California? Sure, sure. <laughs> Put a little filter over the lens. <laughs> Nobody will notice. So the party goes for a hike as everyone on the bridge watches. Somehow. Who planted these cameras? The shuttlecraft is in the shot, so it's not coming from the shuttlecraft. Yes, and that's the first, that specific shot is they walk away from the shuttlecraft, and you're, you're kind of going, yeah, where's that camera angle coming from? But even from then, over the coming scene now, the people on the bridge of the Enterprise continue to like watch this interaction take place. There's a cut later where you see them reacting to the action that's taking place on the planet. And those moments, it's like, what the, what the hell was that? How are they in any way, shape, or form able to witness what's going on here? That doesn't make any sense at all. It's a God's eye view, man. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. Not the first time Star Trek has had problems with cameras being yeah. in places they shouldn't. In Star Trek Four, the council was watching, apparently, the videotape of Star Trek Three because who filmed... <laughs> The Enterprise exploding. Sure, right. But there it is. And in Star Trek Three, who filmed the engine room and edited it so nicely <laughs> when they're watching, yep, you know, yep. Spock die. I, fuck, I don't know. <laughs> so, yes, they've, they've had problems with that before, I guess. It's, it's a movie. So, Scotty is the only one on the ship who is not watching what's going on. He's still trying to get the transporter working. Fuck! Even in the future, nothing works! Why didn't Cybok try to turn him? That's actually a good question. I'm trying now that we're talking about it. I'm trying to think back. It, my initial thought is that he and Scotty are never together. But as Sulu and company, I think, came up the passageway at one point, they found Scotty yep. laying there. Took him to sick bay. Yeah, that's so, where he and Uhura had the cringe moment. Right. But Cybok wasn't there. Yeah. So I guess he got up from sick bay and went about his business and yeah. just never had the interaction. Concussion be damned. I'm right. going to fix this transporter. <laughs> They never try to turn him because he says, I'm not about to let the captain down. He's not doing it for Cyborg. He's mm-hmm. trying to get everything working for Kirk. So, yeah, while everyone is watching the TV, the monitors show that the Klingons are approaching. Klingon ship has entered the quadrant. Oops. So. No one notices. Yeah. Why isn't this setting off some kind of proximity alarm? It's an enemy ship. So I guess for reasons, there are no bells that go off and say this. Hey, guys, you want to go to yellow alert, maybe? Mm-hmm. The four on the planet have found nothing, and Cybok yells at the clouds. So suddenly there's an earthquake, and everything goes dark. And it's interesting, too, as he throws his little fit over the fact that there's, like, no welcoming committee. This is one of those things where I think it's interesting that if you think about the idea of, okay, there's this planet. Planets are kind of, you know, large, big places. Generally speaking. You bring your craft in, and you pick a place to land. 
What are the odds that you're landing in the specific spot on this planet where something's going on that you want to be? How do you know where a civilization is going to be or where you're going to... And in this case, there's just barrenness. I think they've got scanners and things that they would have been looking at to guide them to where they were going to go to follow the power source or something that they had recognized was coming because this was like the largest power source Spock had ever seen. And... It's emanating from this planet. Okay, well, so as you bring in your craft in, what are you expecting? I mean, you don't just get there and like... Remember, Spock said the shuttlecraft was flying itself. Oh, that's true. So there's that. Okay. You're a stupid dumbass. It guided them roughly to where they were supposed to go. But again, once you get out of the shuttlecraft, if there's nobody sitting there waiting for you, then you kind of go, all right, uh, which way do we go? All right. (laughs) It's the middle of the desert i would like to find a place fairly quickly before we die of exposure so there's an earthquake everything goes dark and rocks break out of the ground forming a circle in the middle of which appears a column of energy which shoots out into space and then god appears in a bunch of monkey style solarized faces until he settles on the classic old white man <laughs> with a beard i mean if it ain't broke don't fix it right this better meet your expectations Sure. Is this what you had in mind? Old white guy with a beard? Yeah, why not? Yeah, forget Buddha or the crazy Indian elephant god. This is... It'd be funny if it was like the elephant god with like six arms. Ganesh. Ha ha. It was me all along, Austin! (laughs) So the being questions Cybok about the Enterprise and wants to use it. And then we get Kirk coming up with the line of the movie. Uh, My favorite line. What does God need with a starship? It's a simple question. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. So God gets cranky that someone is asking questions and shoots Kirk with lightning from his eyes. And when Spock gets uppity, God zaps him too. It's a good question. Right? What does God need with a starship? So it turns out that this isn't a God at all, but some creature that has been imprisoned here. By who? Don't know. Why? Don't know. Well, clearly he's a bad guy. Clearly he's selfish and wants to blow shit up or something. So why does it say that this is Cybok's fault and then take his form? Don't know. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Why would Cybok wanting there to be a god on this planet cause there to be a powerful being imprisoned on this planet? It don't make no sense. And I guess the only correlation you can make here is that the mythology over the course of time and whatever research he's done that's brought him here is somehow or another tied up in the idea that, okay, there's some being that's here some supernatural force, and now they get here, and it's the disappointment of, oh, it's it's this bad dude that was imprisoned here, not what we thought it was going to be. I mean, yeah. it's really, really loose. You really got to kind of, like, suspend a lot of expectation and thought to get there, but that's all I got out of it. Well, I, I do love Kirk's skepticism, because how many times have they dealt with godlike beings in the TV show exactly, or something right, like right, that? Right. It's like, yeah, I've seen this movie before, you know? This is, this is old hat to me, sweetheart. Yeah. So Cybok fights God, quote God, causing a distraction while Kirk orders the Enterprise to fire a photon torpedo on their position. And the shot of the Enterprise firing the torpedo is the most obvious model shot in the series history. (laughs) If you're making a Star Trek movie, the one thing you can't screw up are the effects. Oh, God. The lighting, it's too brightly lit. You can tell it's a fucking model. Mm. Change the lighting. Do something. It looks terrible. Fucking thing sucks! Ugh. Anyway, the torpedo hits and breaks the rock circle, which 
I would think a photon torpedo would have vaporized everything in that circle, but the rocks are still intact, and it pisses God off. And Kirk and company all run for it. And in the chaos, no one on the ship notices that the Klingons have cloaked. And to your point earlier, this was where they saw Kirk get shot by God's laser eyes, and everyone reacts, because apparently the camera followed them the whole time. <laughs> and they were still watching everything, and it's like, all right, all right. But yeah, nobody notices that the Klingon ship has gone in a cloak. And I believe this is where the Rockman sequence would have been. Yeah, right. Where they were getting chased by rock people. Shatner wanted six Rockman suits. But the cost of those suits would have been in excess of $300,000. So they're like, well, we'll give you one. And it's one of those things, well, well, I guess if we edit it right, we can make it look like there are more of them. If we do some, maybe we can make it work. I don't know. So they did make one suit and you could see... And the behind-the-scenes stuff on the DVDs, they show, like, the little screen test for it. It didn't work very well. It wasn't very convincing. And ultimately, they just said, well, we ain't doing that. Right. So everybody runs back to the shuttlecraft, but it's not working now. Fuck! Even in the future, nothing works! Scotty has the transporter partly working. Conveniently, it can only take two of them. Kirk has him beam out Spock and McCoy. And the instant they're back on the ship, the Klingons attack and break the transporter again. Fuck! Even in the future, nothing works! For fuck's sake. (laughs) (sighs) I mean, it's instant. Okay, now bring up the captain. Boom! Oh, Jesus Christ. So Kirk is stranded alone on the planet. God breaks into the shuttlecraft instead of using the open back door, which Kirk is able to run out of. I'm starting to think this thing really isn't God. He's not very smart. Uh, He's got to go in the open door, dude. So the Klingons demand that Kirk be handed over, because now all of a sudden he doesn't want to beat him in combat. He just wants to get him on his ship and kill him or something. So Spock convinces the old Klingon general to help him. And on the planet, Kirk is being chased by a bad God effect shooting lightning at him. So the Klingon ship appears out of nowhere and shoots God with TIE fighter sound effects. I mean, it had been... Six years since Return of the Jedi. It'd be another ten years before a Star Wars movie would get made again. Why not? Why not? Why not? We'll go into the sound library. I don't think it's a good idea to mix Star Wars sound effects in a Star Trek movie, but what do I know? (laughs) If I remember correctly, they had sound effects for that particular ship shooting those weapons in Star Trek III. Why didn't they just reuse those sound effects? That would have made a lot more sense. It would have. The Klingons beam up Kirk, and he is brought to the bridge where the Klingon captain is made to apologize by the general. And then Spock is there, too. He is shown to have been the man who killed God. Kirk thought he was going to die, but Spock says that he was never alone. And there is a little funny moment here that actually does work, where Kirk goes to give Spock a hug, and he mm-hmm. said, please, not, not in, front in front of the, front of the Klingons. Klingons. <laughs> See, that works. Just cut it down to about 20%. That was a little funny bit. So then we have an after party where everybody's hanging out, And Sulu and Chekhov follow the Klingon woman around. Chekhov admires her muscles, and Sulu admires the bulge in her pants. Oh, my. He does these impersonations. I swear, you would think it was the real people. Apparently that... Got another one. (laughs) Apparently that bit was uh, ad-libbed by uh, Walter Coney. All right. I could see that. So we kind of get our wrapping up final thoughts like they did in the original series, where Kirk says, maybe God isn't out there. Maybe he's in the human heart. Spock says he lost a brother. Kirk says he lost a brother once, but got him back again. But Kirk actually did lose a brother in the TV show in an episode called Operation Annihilate. It was William Shatner with a mustache. Did he forget? 
It's like, no, we, we found your brother dead on that planet that one time, dude. You don't remember? It's an insult. Sam Kirk is dissed severely. Mm. Dissed again. So Kirk, Spock, and McCoy go camping again. Spock has his Vulcan lyre, another little throwback to the original series TV show. And they sing, row, row, row your boat as we go to the credits, and Jerry Goldsmith plays us out. Any final thoughts before we go to the aftermath? <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's good. Okay. So we get to the aftermath. Star Trek V opened June 9th, 1989, in the middle of one of the biggest summers in film history. Probably the biggest up to that point. Here's a brief rundown. May 24th, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade opens. Set the opening weekend box office record, made $29.3 million. June 9th, Star Trek V comes out. Sets the opening weekend box office record for a Star Trek movie, making $17.3 million. June 16th, Ghostbusters 2 opens, so one week later. Sets the opening weekend box office record with $29.4 million. June 23rd, Batman opens. Mm -hmm. Sets the opening weekend box office record with $40.4 million. So in the span of a month, the opening weekend box office record was broken three times. Damn. (laughs) It was incredible. Right. And then on top of that, July 7th, you got Lethal Weapon 2. July 14th, James Bond comes out, License to Kill. And by this point, there was so much stuff out there that License to Kill did so badly that Bond never came out in the summer again. That was the last time they opened a Bond movie in summer. All the other ones moved to November. Mm -hmm. And the most recent one came out in October, which is crazy because Bond had always been a summer franchise. Even though Star Trek V was number one its first weekend and did have the biggest opening for a Star Trek movie, it also opened on 850 more screens to earn only 600,000 more than Mm. Star Trek IV. Wow. So it made it because it was in way wider release. It also doesn't take into account three years of ticket price inflation. Sure. So, yes, it set the record, but not as impressively as and you And then what think. was the drop-off after that opening week? Poor word of mouth and stiff competition made it drop almost 59% wow. in its second weekend, which is the biggest second weekend drop in Star Trek until 1998, when you get Star Trek Insurrection that dropped just over 62%. In its second weekend. And that doesn't even count what Nemesis did. Because mm-hmm. Nemesis came out the week before the Two Towers, and it dropped something like 75%. Mm-hmm. It was just a massive drop-off. But by then, they were just about done with the Next Generation stuff anyway. Yeah, right. But yeah, it was it was almost a decade before Star Trek would drop out much in its second weekend again. In addition, Star Trek was also competing with itself, because Next Generation was out. Mm-hmm. And you had Star Trek on TV recently for the first time in 20 years. So the next generation was in the middle of its second season. Now they didn't put any new episodes out in between when the movie opened and for a couple weeks after. But if you were sitting around the house, hey, you want to watch Star Trek? Well, we could go to the theater. Or yeah, but we could catch the rerun or whatever. And if you wanted to catch Star Trek, you didn't necessarily have to go to a movie theater to see it, which is the first time in several years that had been the case. So Star Trek V ended up with a wide release of only 10 weeks, which was shorter than any of the movies before it. Mm. It was the 10th highest grossing movie of the summer. It made about $49.5 million domestically and was considered a disappointment. That's against a budget of roughly $33 million. So it turned a profit, but a very, very small one. Yeah, not what they were looking for. Yeah. And the negative response nearly killed the film franchise. They did manage to bring the original cast back for one final send-off. Harv Bennett had wanted to do a prequel movie instead where you had like a younger group going through their days at the Academy. Mm-hmm. 
And then Paramount's like, no, let's bring the old guys back for one more go around. So that's when he finally said, you know what, I'm leaving Star Trek. And he finally bows out at that point. But they did get him one more good movie in Star Trek VI. Star Trek V is the one that really solidified the idea of the odd-numbered movies being bad mm. and the even ones being good. It was that one that really said, okay, here's the pattern. It is established now at this point, five movies in. Because the first one, people had always had problems with the first one. The third one, I think, is fine, but yeah, it's I not... Yeah, Spock. Yeah, but it's not as good as the second. Sure, sure. And it's not as good as the fourth, because that was the one that made all the money. It's kind of the red-headed stepchild there in the middle of those three. And then the fifth one just came out, and nobody liked it. So that was like, yep, that's the pattern. We got it now. Mm. Star Trek V was nominated for five Razzie Awards. <laughs> not quite as many as Battlefield Earth, but a lot. Worst Picture. Worst Director. Worst Actor, both William Shatner. Wow. Supporting Actor, DeForest Kelly. Ooh. And Screenplay. It won three. Worst Picture, Worst Director, and Worst Actor. Good grief. Because DeForest Kelly had his moments, but he also had some really good moments, so I don't think I would have been... I don't think I was particularly fair to him. So this is an award-winning film. Yes, it is. This is an (laughs) award-winning film at the end of the day. So, Thornton Mellon, would you recommend Star Trek V, The Final (laughs) Frontier? I would not recommend it. I mean, I, I don't think it offends me quite as much as it does you. And, and even in retrospect, talking about it, it does. It has a lot of flaws or a lot of things about it, especially in context of Star Trek. It's lacking. There are a lot of things that could have been better about it. But on repeat viewings, for me, it, it's not as bad over the course of time. I've come to appreciate it, I think, a little bit more than I did even when I first saw it. The whole shockery, God being at the center of the galaxy, that whole premise for me was the real flaw. The fact that Shatner kind of latched onto that whole televangelist vibe and made that the premise for the whole thing, I think is the overarching plot flaw for me. That if you take a lot of the other stuff around it that they did that was not specific to the plot or telling that particular story, I think if you put a completely different antagonist in it and base it around some other premise but leave a lot of the other things in place, it could have been a lot better. So I think it's not as bad as it could have been. I'm not as down on it as as you were. See, the problem with the God thing is how would you ever actually find or show God in a way that's going to make anybody happy? Right. You couldn't do it. So you know from the start, it's not really going to be God. It's just not going to happen. So yeah, it's it's a flawed premise. To me, it's a movie that for all its issues, its heart was in the right place. Right. It tried to be what the original series was, dealing with some heavy topics and all that, but the f- fucking comedy, man. Oh, God. <laughs> Which I didn't mind too much. I, I think specifically, I kind of, for my part, I liked the bits with Kirk McCoy and Spock in on shore leave out camping. It was, it was kind of taking the three of them, especially after everything that went down with the previous films with Spock reestablishing their dynamic and their relationship, bring it back together. I, I think it did go a little over the top, like we said earlier, with some of McCoy in particular getting a little bit heavy on the insults with Spock more so than he has. It, it's in that realm of where they've been, but he got a little mean with it in this one. But it's kind of building on the dynamic of the three of them that we've established since the original series. So it's nice to see them having a friendship and having that dynamic between them outside when they're off duty. So I kind of dug all that stuff, but once now you're back on the ship, now you're back to work. Okay. Yeah. The slapstick Scotty walking into the bulkhead, knocking himself out the things like that, that yeah, dial that back quite a bit. But I dug a lot of the other stuff that they kind of, 
like I said, you take some of those things, base it around a different story at the center of the whole thing, and I think it would have been a lot better. 25%, man, to scale it back. <laughs> they were trying to do something in the vein of what they had done on the TV show. It's a swing and a miss, but at least they were swinging for the fences. Right. I mean, you don't get much bigger than going to try and find God. It was just never going to be a satisfying resolution. Right. No now, now, part of the story was, if I understand correctly, based on one of Shatner's Star Trek novels, right? There Or pieces and parts of this were kind of pilfered out of some other idea he had, but it, and then got turned into this. But I don't know what, like, how much is loosely based on something that he'd written. Not that I'm aware of, because he wasn't writing any novels at this point. Oh, okay. He I thought he had. He didn't do that, I don't think, until the 90s. Gotcha. Yeah, I think it was more after he was done with Star Trek, or Star Trek was done with him, however you want to look at it. I don't know, numbers-wise, what would you give it? I'm like six and a half. I mean, it's definitely in the context of the Star Trek series, the worst of the original crew's adventures. But I think when you rate it again, I mean, we've done Battlefield Earth. We, you know, we, we've looked at some really bad filmmaking experiences. Garbage. That I think this doesn't rate for me. This is not like something that I watch and just go, oh, good God. It's not up to par for Star Trek. But again, it, when you sit back and... You're just watching a, a movie. It, it doesn't offend. You have those grown moments and you're kind of like, oh, what the what the hell? But yeah, it's not a bad movie for me so much, I think. I gotcha. All right. How best to put this? <laughs> I mean, it just, it suffers so much in comparison with the others. Right, right. Because the right. others are on another stratosphere and compared to this that. one. And having said that, no, it is not the worst movie we've seen by us fucking mile are you kidding me <laughs> vanilla ice has entered the chat but i mean just compared to the others it's kind of like with the monkeys it pissed me off because their potential was there sure okay and it could have been a much better movie and it should have had much better effects right 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 and there's so much cringe stuff it would have been easy to get rid of that you didn't need and it just doesn't work but still having said all that i would watch this on a 24-hour loop like a Christmas story <laughs> compared to the shit they're pushing out now. Okay, yeah. So this used to be considered the worst thing that Star Trek has done. And the funny thing about that is if you look at the reviews and the ratings and whatnot, I got it wrote down here, usually there's a discrepancy between the critics and the audience when you see these things. Rotten Tomatoes, critics, 22%. Audience, 24%. For Star Trek V. For Star Trek V. Okay. So it's not even like there is a disconnect there at all. Wow. It's like everybody hated this fucking thing. IMDb is 5.5. Huh. Now we've reviewed some other movies where they've been like sixes or something like that. And it's like, really? At 5.5, it's kind of meh. Okay. For me, it's a little bit lower. I would say 4 out of 10. I mean, it's all right. It's watchable, but it's not good. Right. There's worse choices you could make. If you really like Star Trek... You'll enjoy it a lot more. That's probably where a lot of it is for me, is that it's you gain a little bit of points from the nostalgia factor, the fact that it's the original cast yes. on this adventure that I think it would it maybe wouldn't have been viewed quite as fondly if it wasn't these original guys that you had that connection to. Yeah, you've only got six movies with them, so right. you're just going to take one of them and completely throw it away? No, but it's the last go-to choice. You could skip this one sure. if you're doing a retrospective, and you'd be just fine. Right. People have tried to ignore the fact that this movie exists. There's nothing in here that gets carried over to part six. You could just chuck it out. If you go jump from four to six, mm -hmm. you'd be fine. And, and I know Shatner gets a lot of shit for his role as the director in this, the, in the fact that it, partly his story. 
So he's got a lot of hands in the pot in terms yeah. of driving this forward. But with all of the other things that kind of go around it, how much does he really shoulder, quote unquote, blame for it suffering the way that it does versus the things like the writer's strike, uh, you know, the Teamsters saying and things that impacted the making of the film, budgetary constraints, ILM couldn't come to the to the table to help with special effects. Are there things that if it hadn't been the whole picture, even what what they put together could have been better? And how much is like his fault? This was just like the perfect storm yeah. of everything going wrong. They say pressure makes diamonds, but mm-hmm. it also just can crush the shit out of you. I don't know if anybody else, if Nicholas Meyer had come back, would right. he have been able to make something out of this? Because Wrath of Khan had a lot of the same impacts in terms of budgetary drawbacks mm-hmm. and things that they had to work against, but it doesn't suffer the same way. They they were able to tell a really, really good story around the, the constraints that they had to make it Yeah, versus what they've ended up with here. But they also had ILM working with them. Right. They didn't have any location shooting to do. They had a story and whatnot in place. They didn't have people arguing back and forth about what was going to... They weren't reaching for something so nebulous that you could never achieve it. Sure. And that's the problem. Like, you're flying too close to the sun yeah. is kind of what happened. And in general, directors get too much credit when a movie is successful mm-hmm. and too much blame when a movie goes wrong. It's yeah. a collaborative process to make a movie. You've got hundreds of people working on this thing. So when it all comes together and works, it's because hundreds of people all came together and made it work. And the same thing, it's not one person's fault if something all falls apart. Yeah. So yeah, we Chatner gets a lot of shit for this, and maybe he deserves some of it, but it's not all his fault. Right. Now, his wife in the pool, I don't know. That might be <laughs> more his fault. We haven't really closed the book on that, have we? It's a little suspect when you're going through a terrible divorce with your wife. <laughs> and uh, the fire department shows up to take your wife's lifeless body out of the pool. You never even gave it a shot. Okay, faggot, what's next? The other side of the coin. <laughs> Caveman from 1981, starring Ringo Starr, Barbara Bach, Dennis Quaid, and I don't know who else. If we thought this one was bad, I guarantee you this next one is going to be... We're going to wish we could watch this 24-7. I, I, like, I like the fast pivot from futuristic sci-fi to now prehistoric yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah we're, we're, we're completely we'll, the other direction. We'll be glad that we can make fire without rubbing sticks together or something. <laughs> I don't know. But that's what we'll do next time on ORS at the Movies. We're going to go see Ringo Starr pretend he can act. I don't know. You got, uh, you got anything else? Any final thoughts? Nah, that's good for me. All right. Well, he's Thornton Mellon. I'm G Money Clip. So just kick back, grab some popcorn, watch some movies, and we'll catch you next time. Adios, nachos.